0: We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Welcome to today's episode of Cascading Leadership. I am your friendly neighborhood talent strategy nerd, Dr. Jim. LB absolutely loves that intro. And with me, I have, who do I have here?
1: Lawrence Brown, otherwise known as LB, your executive reading and research coach. Uh,
0: That's way too long of an intro there, Uh (laughs) You got to redo that. I don't think I like that. That's that's corny. Hello, LB. That's, I think soft-spoken I've ever heard you. Wow. Hey, dude. Hi. All right. You may so, have to edit some of this. Nope. No edits. We're, we're going live. This is another one of our latest series of episodes on Innovators and Disruptors. And to represent the innovator and disruptor crowd, we have our featured guests. Say hello, featured guests.
2: Hi, everyone. I'm Melissa Moody. I am a marketer by trade. I am also a mother and a very busy lady who is always getting involved with excited things. I have had a long stint in marketing. Over the last 14 years, I was with Google, and over the last two, I have been on the ground floor of a very exciting startup called Gated that we'll talk about later. I live in Alaska, which a lot of people love to talk about. I tend to be someone who goes big with whatever I do, and I think we'll get into that a lot today, but glad to be here, glad to dive in, glad to spend time with each of you on bringing to light these disruptors and innovators that are thinking differently, because there's nothing I love more than someone who looks at the world and says, I can do that differently or I can do that better. So thanks for having me.
0: As per usual, I'm pretty pumped about talking to our guests and hearing their stories. I do have to ask a question, like, you're a mom, you've been a Googler, you're in a startup. Like, how do you find time for that when you're so busy already, like, wrestling grizzlies and tending to your moose farm in Alaska? (laughs) That's what happens in Alaska, right?
2: You're not kidding. I have moose like other people have deer in their backyard, so you're not wrong. That's a great question. I think we'll probably get to peel back the onion on that one a little bit, but for me... I'm very good at laser focusing on whatever's in front of me. So sometimes that's just one thing. It's a goal in work. And sometimes it's, I've got one goal at home and one goal at work, and I need to balance those. But for me, it's definitely about seeing the thing in front of me and moving toward it fast and making sure that everything else is gently pushed away.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I think for those of our listeners who aren't connected with you is to certainly connect with the, uh, with Melissa on LinkedIn, if for nothing else, other than to observe her discipline and not lashing out at people that are not very fun online commenting about all sorts of things and virtue signaling about every other thing. But that's a different story. That's an inside joke. And that's going to stay in the show.
2: One of my big things is you can only control what you can control. And a lot of things are going to happen all around you. And if you focus on what's in your power, that helps a lot with letting the rest go, right?
0: Yep. So I we're definitely going to spend some time talking about, about the work that you're doing at Gated and what all of that involves. But I want to wind the clock back and get a little background and context into your journey up until this point. What were the big formative experiences that shaped sort of your worldview and perspective?
2: I've really enjoyed hearing some of your previous guests get into this. So I think it's fun. It feels a little bit like we're sitting down on the therapy chair to chat about this. But I grew up, I was very fortunate. I grew up in the East Bay in California, in the San Francisco Bay Area. I was really fortunate, I grew up in a very loving home with mom and a dad. And when I was reflecting on that life and two older brothers, when I was reflecting on that life, I thought a little bit of this fact that I had a really strong base in being supported and loved. And I think that that is something that if you have it, you treasure it, you need to respect it and you need to really be grateful for it because a lot of folks don't come from that. So I was thinking back and really just had a moment of gratefulness when I reflected on that. I, also, I mentioned having two older brothers. They're quite older than me so i was the third kid but like the baby who was still at home when everybody else was off and grown so i definitely have an element of that third kid who i won't say got away with everything because i i was never a bad kid i never did anything wrong but who was given the chance to do a lot i grew up in a world where you go to dinner parties because you're the only kid right everybody else's kids are older and grown or you you're asked to sit down with the adults and talk about interesting current events or business i didn't really think about it until I had the chance to reflect here. But I think a lot of who I am now is that confidence of being able to walk into a situation and just take part and see something going on and step in and be a part of things. And so that when I look back to that early days, that's what stood out to me for sure. With being the
0: third child with yeah. two older siblings, were your older siblings like completely out of the house? So did you have the best of both worlds thing? You're the baby, but you're also like the only child too?
2: Yeah, they're like eight-ish years older. So they were quite a bit older. We are very close now as adults, but I think at the time it, it felt like I was an only child a little bit for sure. But it gives you also almost two more adults in the house a little bit to look up to. Two more people who are way ahead of you. So you're asked to mature faster. You're asked to, again, take part in things that are maybe in front of your years if you were just being raised with other similar age siblings.
0: When you look at that experience, and then you tie play it forward a little bit into your high school and college experience, what what were the things that shaped you during that part of your your journey?
2: Yeah, it actually I was you, this is a good story for you guys. So I was a dancer growing up. I was a ballerina for a long time. It's a hard sport; breaks down your body. It's really tough, but I, I loved it. Due to injuries, I had to stop when I was in high school, and there was a moment where I didn't know what I was doing next, and. You'll get a kick out of this. I had some friends who were on the rowing or the crew team. So we would row, or there was 4.30 morning practice in the Oakland Estuary, like between Alameda. It's it's stinky. I think one time there was a dead body floating. Like it's an interesting place to row a crew shell. It's not fancy pants, but I was a ballerina. I had nothing else to do. And I had some friends who said, why don't you come down and sit in the back of the boat as the coxswain? I don't know if it's a little person who sits in the back and yells at everybody else what to do. These were my- I could do that. I'm good at you yelling be, at people. Men would be amazing at coxing.
1: And he's the right size.
2: But these were high school men rowers. Because in co- as you're a coxswain, you can be a female coxswain for the men's rowing team. Anyway, they literally dragged me down at 4.30 in the morning. Pitch is super pitch black, cold. And the coach says, okay, here we go. Everybody get in the boat. Off you go. And one of the guys goes, coach, she's never done this before. She's never coxed a boat before. And he goes, oh, she'll figure it out. And sure enough, I got in that darn thing and I didn't steer it into the port. Like I did what I could, but that moment. And I think it's the same thing of having that confidence just to say, I could probably do this. And just to get in the boat and go, that was extremely formative for me because we then went on, we had, we were national, we competed at the national level. I think we were second in the country, two of my high school years, I ended up being the men's coxswain for men's heavyweight rowing in college as well. I was, I took part on that. So almost eight years of my life were spent bossing around a team of large men. That's basically my my formative experience. Now, we could say I had the confidence before I did that, but certainly when you live in that world and you are the only woman on a men's team, and not only that, but you're fairly in charge, it definitely sets you up for a lot of life situations that follow on after that.
0: I, I can't relate to any of that because you can't get me on the water for anything unless it's <laughs> off of a dock to go fishing. So that's as close to a water story as I have for you.
2: But you do coach. You're very good. at. You're a coaching mentality. You know what it takes to inspire people and to move them and to get them driving.
0: I shudder to think what I would have turned into if I got licensed to just yell at people. So you grew up on the West Coast, but then... You have something in common with one of our earlier guests where you actually went to Tuck as well, right? No, I actually went, I went undergrad.
2: Yeah, I was at Dartmouth undergrad, but yeah, Hanover definitely went all the way across country. As I look back, a lot of these things were just the idea of go big. Like I remember growing up on the West Coast and saying, I'm a West Coast kid. I'm probably going to come back to the West Coast. Why not go somewhere else for four years? A lot of my life has been, yeah, hop in, go do that. Give that a shot. So yeah, Hanover is just an idyllic place back East. Spent a couple years after college. I actually have my master's in education. I was a teacher for quite a few years after college. Really love, maybe that's the same as yelling at people in a boat, but I love working with people. I love inspiring people and helping them succeed. And that teaching component was so fulfilling for quite a few years. Worked at an amazing school called Landmark. My specialty is working with kids with language-based learning disabilities. That's what I taught. Landmark School does an incredible job of that. And then after a couple of years of that, when I got married, we came back to the West Coast. Like I said, I'm a West Coaster. I ended up marrying a West Coaster. And when that happens, you find your way back West. And at that point, I essentially tried to keep teaching, thought I would keep teaching, and hit a moment where if you know any teachers... And September comes, and they're not psyched to be in the classroom. They're not going to make it to June. And I looked at myself, and I realized I didn't have that passion, and I couldn't find the right environment, the school that I wanted to be in to teach. I really loved what I did working with language-based learning disabilities, and I couldn't find the right place to let me do that. So I made a pivot then, and Jim knows about this pivot. LB, I don't know if you've heard this one, but I realized I like to move fast, and the world of education is a little bit of a slog. And right, there is a you have to have such passion. And my best friends that are in the world of education, I could not admire them more, but it is a slog. Am I wrong?
1: Did Jim tell you where I am?
2: I, You are currently doing a postdoc, right? I'm doing a
1: postdoc, but I am a director for an MBA program in higher education. Oh. I can definitely relate to different, there's definitely a, a different pace.
0: So he and I worked together at Enterprise. So that was super fast paced. And then his first big move was to Allstate. And my first question there was, you sure? Because I know Allstate and I know their operating rhythm and their property casualty insurance, which is slow AF. Curing. yeah. And he stuck it up for, I don't know, 10 years or something like that.
2: But I think that's actually super interesting though. Pacing is something I didn't... No one ever talks about that when you're looking for a job or when you're making career pivots. No one says, how fast do you want to move? I definitely had to discover that for myself. I love teaching. I love the kids. I love everything about it. And I was like, oh, why am I not? Why is it not clicking? And I realized because I'm, I will be very candid. I move at an exceedingly rapid pace, like really fast. And I thrive. The faster I go, the happier I am. And the more I get done when things slow down for me everything slows down. And so until I realized that pace was a thing that I should be thinking about, I was like, I'm in education. This is what I'm doing. working
1: here. Yeah, but so actually one of the questions that I had when you were talking about being a coxswain. That, so you, you did ballet, which is a lot of people I think don't know is also fast paced. <laughs> and then you went to being a coxswain. And then uh, my question was going to be for you was, how do you think that predisposed you for what the future would be?
2: I think for either and both of them they're they both require a crazy amount of dedication and i think both of those things instilled in me you got to work really hard and you've got to be very committed and if you're not going to cut it that's flat out like you're going to lose a race on the water in the in crew and you're going to be far behind your i don't know, your teammates the other ballerinas or whatever it may be the physical capabilities understanding your physical capabilities and your commitment and your dedication both of those are really challenged in the world of dance and in the world of any athletic sport, I would say. But let's be honest, if you ever meet a rower or like a cross country runner, there's something you got to be like real wrong to take your body and then push it even further.
1: And I was going to say too, that it's correlative also, because you're talking about the physical, but it's also that your mind has to prepare the body to actually go through that too. So I think that as I was listening to it, that's what I was hearing. It's like, yeah, there's a little bit of determination.
2: We don't see those those cheesy posters on the walls, they always have a crew shell. There's a reason. Like, keep, like, perseverance, stay with it.
1: We
0: talked a little bit about pacing being an important factor in making or informing your decision on what to do next out of, out of the education world. So how did you evaluate what you wanted to do and where you wanted to land?
2: Yeah, I think it's an interesting journey. And I've, what's really interesting, I've seen a lot more people take this as well, which is going from teaching into specifically into marketing. So the way I see it, they're very similar. You have a message and you have an audience and the measure of your success is whether your audience understands your message, right? Like whether you actually can convince the audience of what you're trying to get through. In my mind, that was a very clear pivot from one into the other. I've always loved people. I love communication. I love kind of which I'm very passionate about language. We probably go into that too. So teaching to marketing, I saw that And I said, I think I can make this pivot. (laughs) Basically, I think I can come in and sell myself into a new career. The other piece was the pacing. I said, I want to be in a corporate world because I believe it moves a lot faster. I was, if I go back to like my parents, my father was very business oriented. We were raised to always be understanding the business components of everything. And my mother was very much... The, the people, the connections person, she could make anything happen with an amazing, she was very big like nonprofit organization. And so bringing those two together for me made a lot of sense when I pivoted into the corporate world. So yeah, honestly, frankly, I didn't really have my eyes set on anything like Google or either. I just wanted to work at a place where I could effectively learn marketing because I was still new in the space and be moving really fast, be trusted to be autonomous and bring that dedication, that commitment to really run fast and run hard. So I just kept my eyes open. I was in Seattle at the time and there were a lot of really cool Seattle companies around 2006.
1: So when you were talking about the, the idea of stories and I was actually talking to a fellow marketer earlier today and I am guilty of being accused of, I say this all the time, right? I think that marketing fixes everything. And I say that because if you have the best brand, the best product in the world and nobody knows it, then what, it really, what does it really do for you? And then once you start to talk about it, what you just talked about, which is something that is extremely important, is storytelling. So, Jim will tell you, I drop books that I read all the time. And so, the two that come to mind for me are Kendra Hall, Stories That Stick. And oh, then yeah. the other one is Building a Story Brand, Don Miller. Don't quote me on that, but I think it's Don Miller.
2: Yeah, and, Story Brand.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, when you think about like how this is what I want to know, you went from teaching, which makes sense to because the audience and the story that you want to tell. How did you make that first mark into marketing though? And then Where did you go from there?
2: Yeah, a little bit of it was pitching my tail off. A little bit was that idea of I'm going to go in there and I'm going to sell it and see who bites. So I had a lot of interviews. I went in and was like, Hey, I'm a teacher. I've got I've got a fairly good business understanding. I've got I was pitching myself. And as you all well know, the interview process will chew you up and spit you out. And so it was it was a slog. But I found that, and this is my theory on all jobs and interviews. When, when you walk into a place and the conversation and somebody looks at you and they say, I want to hire you because of who you are, not what you've done. That's a very special place. And I was extremely fortunate to find that in my the first managing director that hired me at Google. But a lot of it was probably more his job than mine to actually make that connection because I was putting myself out there over and over again. And he was probably, if not the first, he was one of the most compelling who said, I can give you a place where you can learn and you can grow and you can run fast. And so to a certain extent, I think I continued to do the same thing until I found that right match. And it's hard when you're in that job search. I've talked to so many people currently who are in the marketing world right now. There's a lot of transition, a lot of people interviewing. And a lot of it is I say, don't change your story. Keep telling your story until you find the right. You could probably apply that to dating and marriage too, right? Don't change who you are for your audience. Go out there and tell a compelling story. And when you find the right fit, you're going to know. And sure, we get it wrong sometimes, but...
0: The whole idea of find the right fit is consistent with almost every story that we've told so far in our show. It's find your community, find your people. It's just another way of saying the same thing. So I think that's absolutely critical. There's this whole idea, and I don't know who thought it up, but we've been hoodwinked into thinking that in order for us to get whatever it is that we want to get, you got to sell out in the process. No, that's not true. Like You can be who you want to be and still get everything that you want to get. So I think the point that you make is consistent with things that every one of our guests has said previously.
2: I have to add, I think one of the saddest things I've seen recently is where women are less likely to apply for a job if they're not qualified. Where men they're just like, screw it. I'm going to apply. That absolutely breaks my heart that I don't like, I actually come to tears when I'm thinking about it. We need to get to a place where people have that confidence, which maybe I was born with it. Maybe it's my raising. Like I have an absurd amount of confidence. I will go in and tell a story. And if that's not, if it doesn't hit, I will go and do it again. And I will go and do it again. I get that. Not everybody has that. And I, I want to find the world where, especially if we're just talking a male, female difference in that, we can't be there. Like I, every time I see somebody say, I don't think I'm qualified to apply for a role. I just want to grab her and say, it doesn't matter. Put yourself out there, bring your best. And similarly, like things are out of your control. It might not go well, but you give it your best. You have to not let that that failure have a hold over you or the fear of failure have a hold over you. And it's not an easy thing to learn or to even have, but oh God, that one stat of like how I forget it's like what 20% of women will apply to a job that they are not qualified for. It's crazy.
1: I think the number is actually about 30% in for, I'll think about it the, in the inverse way. So I think it was Cheryl Sandberg. It was either lean, or lean, I think it was lean in. I don't think it was obviously, I, I think it was lean in, where it was something like men would know, if men felt like they were 30% capable, <laughs> they were applying, they would just they go felt for like it. they had yeah. to be, 70, 80 percent. So right, your 20, 30 percent is, I think it's on mark. But it's interesting to also note that uh, I think diverse, ethnically diverse populations are also in that same kind of boat. And even now, you'll see, and Jim talks about this, a lot about what your job descriptions should be. And you'll see now that a lot of companies are saying, we are particularly interested in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and opening up our uh, our environment. And we, if you're a woman or a person of color apply because we know that oftentimes folks may think they can't do the job. I've seen that more and more. So it's good to know that people are starting to to take heed.
0: I think that's progress. And this is a great point that you brought up, Melissa. And I warned you guys in chat that I'm about the soapbox. So I'm about the soapbox. So we talk about it all the time where you're absolutely right that You have a disproportionate amount of men who are unqualified or not measuring up to the actual criteria or requirements for the job that apply. And then you have the societal component of, or the question that gets asked, why are so many incompetent men in positions of leadership? And then you have LB's study, which is on his doctoral research is on women in executive positions and why there's only... I don't know what the number is, 40 or 50 uh, across the Fortune 500. And the question is asked, why aren't there more women? When the question should be, why are there 450 men in there and it's not representative? So you have those questions, but even the job description component. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of psychological conditioning and societal conditioning that happens where you have the requirements and then you have this corollary that says, oh, by the way, it is saying what it's saying. We are interested in diversity, people of color, women, all that sort of stuff. Great. But it's said in a way where if when I read it and I'm, I apply, when I read it, it says, if you're not good enough to meet this criteria, go ahead and apply anyways. That's how it hits me when it's said that way. So my question is this, if we really want to encourage that, Shouldn't we lead with here's what we look for from a character and traits perspective instead of a requirements perspective. And at the end, OPS, if you don't think you measure up to these things, apply anyways, because we want to talk to you. That seems backwards to me.
2: I agree. And I know a lot of people resonate with this as parents. If you have taken time off and you've had a year, two years, five years on your family, and it says, we want to see five plus years of this, three plus years of that, you're looking going, I'm going to have to explain a gap. I'm going to have to tell them, and let I even saying it that way is still explain away. Again, I have potentially a lot of bluster, but I will go in, I will tell them exactly what I did in terms of managing the household and negotiating with toddlers, which are harder than CEOs. I do not see it as a gap, but until we see a difference in your background as a gap, until we stop seeing that as a gap or something you don't have, and we start thinking about it as just different experience that's going to give you different skill sets, then I think you're right. I agree that it needs to be about character and what you show, not necessarily the things that you have done to show that. It's a it's a definitely a challenging.
0: Tune in next time for part two of our interview of Melissa Moody of Gated on the Innovators and Disruptors series of Cascading Leadership. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at Jim at CascadingLeadership.com. Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.